Exodus 32, on the Lord's side, is what we have entitled the message this morning. Let's just unite our heart together in a wee word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank thee again. We're able to meet with thee. We're able to sing our praises unto thee. We're able to read thy word. And O God, we pray just now, thou would bring us into this passage. Give us understanding. O speak to our hearts, Lord. Challenge us. We pray, Lord, for that little word in season. And I would minister unto each and every soul today. Father, to that end, I pray, Thou would fill me with Thy Spirit and with power. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Take away every distraction, Lord, every distracting thought of yesterday, maybe, or the week before us. And Lord, shut us in just with Thyself. Do us good for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Christ was transfigured on the mount, there was a desire to stay there. And you remember how Peter uh, said, Lord, can we not build three booths? One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But the reality was they couldn't stay in the mountain. The reality was they had to come down. And that was so, of course, after the cloud overshadowed them, they heard the Father's voice say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And their eyes were opened, and they beheld, we see, and we read, none but Jesus only. And men and women, when they did go down, how different was the scene down below than it was on the mountaintop with a transfigured Saviour. Because down below they met a man who pleaded for the Lord to heal his lunatic son. His disciples couldn't do anything for him. And in this passage, what we have termed as possibly Moses' finest hour, his intercession happened on the mountain where he pleaded with God for the people. But the sin was still going on down in the valley. On the mountain, he had only heard about their sin. When he was to make his way down that mount, he was to see what actually was taking place. And indeed, before he was to cast his eyes upon it, he was to hear about it. You look at the words of verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. And he said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing, do I hear. Before he saw anything, he could hear it. His servant Joshua thought it was the noise of war, but of course he didn't know what God had told Moses. And Moses knew that the people had corrupted themselves, and so he discerned it right. And he's able to relay what was going on. It was the noise of them that sing. But their singing was not singing to be joined in with. Their singing wasn't cause for rejoicing. Indeed, when he saw it for himself, we have it recorded that Moses, his anger waxed hot. The anger of God is noted in verse 10, using the same words. It's good to be angry at the same things that God is angry with. The anger of Moses plainly revealed that Moses condemned their actions as did God. Today, 
Is it not the case that many of God's people can look at sin and evil and hardly ever get upset about it? It just passes over them with a shrug of the shoulders. It ought to annoy us. It ought to grieve our spirits that God in his name has been dishonored. But it doesn't. You know why? Because we're not in the place where Moses was. And you might ask, where was Moses? Moses was in the presence of the Lord for a long time. For 40 days and 40 nights indeed. And you see, men and women, when we be in the presence of the Lord in prayer and around His Word, you will not tolerate sin either. I want us to look at what it looks like to be in the Lord's sight. Because here is where we'll find Moses and others in this passage. Won't you notice, first of all, the reaction of Moses it was with the sight of the calf. It was with the sight of their dancing that Moses' first reaction was to cast the tables of the law out of his hands so that they break. Verse 19, came to pass as soon as he came nigh unto the camp. He saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. How symbolic that action was. It represented what Israel had been doing. They were literally breaking God's law. They had broken the second commandment by making a graven image, and they had broken the seventh commandment by uh, committing lewd acts of idolatry, adultery. James 2 verse 10 reminds us, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offended in one point, he is guilty of all. Israel were guilty of breaking the whole law of God. And so Moses breaks the tablets of the law as a demonstration of their rebellion against God's holy law. What must be said about this is that God never rebuked them for it. Indeed, later on, without any reprimand, God doesn't rebuke. Uh, God was to rewrite all the words that were on those first tablets. We have it in chapter 34, verse 1. The Lord said unto Moses, Hew ye two stones of, uh, tables of stone like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables which thou breakest. He doesn't rebuke them. God doesn't rebuke his people when they get upset, uh, upset at sin. Would to God that he would see more of his people angry with sin as Moses was. There's some today and they don't like sin dealt with by the elders in the congregation. And there are many today and they don't like the preacher being outspoken against their sin. Men and women, all such people need to ponder the action of Moses here and remember that God approved of it. His reaction, he break the tables. His reaction was furthermore to destroy the idol. I like the words of verse 20. He took the calf which they had made. He burned it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. He took the idol. He burned it. He ground it until it was just small pieces. He threw it upon the water and he made the children of Israel drink of it. By destroying the idol, Moses was showing that it was impotent. 
Remember, they were worshipping this idol. They had been worshipping this idol as a symbol of great power. I've suggested to you it may have been shaped like a bull, like one of the Egyptian idols. And it was symbolic of power. And they were worshipping this idol that was supposed to have power and which brought them out of Egypt. But here, the idol is seen. It couldn't even defend itself. And what a lesson it was for the people For sin leaves a bad taste. And when it's mixed with the water here, it passed into and out of their bodies. It was a way of Moses saying it was nothing but refuge. It was worthless as dung. Charles Simeon, the preacher, said this, No greater indignity could be offered to this worthless idol than that which he devised, nor any more humiliating punishment be inflicted upon the people than to compel them to swallow their God and to cast them out of the draught with their common food. That's why he made them to drink it. And when you consider this scene, we learn that their sin polluted the water. And isn't it so to this day that environmental problems are rooted in sin? But how few mention that, of course, if at all. And we're all supposed to be taken in with this great environmental problem and climate change and all the rest of it. But it's rooted in sin. And there's none other, there's one other reaction about Moses or from Moses, and that was how he denounced Aaron for his part in the idolatry, verse 21. Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? That was all he could do. Aaron, of course, had been appointed by God. He was anointed of the Lord. If Aaron was going to be removed, then God had to do it, not Moses. It's the same with David. Remember David? He had opportunity to take Saul's life, but he dare not. He would not put his hand against it because he was the anointed of the Lord. But what Moses did do, he reproved him publicly. As did Paul to Peter. If you come to Galatians chapter 2, you'll notice that Peter, who's purportedly supposed to be the first pope, a lump of nonsense, But he was rebuked to the face by Paul. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11. It says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James. He did eat with the Gentiles, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barabbas also was carried away with her dissimulation. Barnabas, I beg your pardon, was carried away with her dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? He withstood them to the face. He rebuked them publicly. You see, Peter had forgotten the lesson that God had taught him, even as he met with him on the rooftop on his way to seeing Cornelius and being sent of God 
to Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10 verse 15 says, The voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. He was to be a minister unto the Gentiles as well as unto the Jews. Aaron had failed to give leadership. He had allowed the people to dictate to him instead of leading them. When the people complained, he did what they wanted him to do instead of doing that which was right. He didn't give heed to the exhortation. Chapter 23 of Exodus, verse 2. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. He forgot about that. Aaron was a people pleaser. Not one who sought to please the Lord. And his weakness led to terrible sin. As we read it there, even in those words, so great a sin upon them. Verse 21, he was a poor influence upon those whom he was supposed to be leading. Instead of increasing their faith, he instead was to inflict infected with idolatry. Instead of lifting up the standard, he had lowered it, causing them to be naked. Is it any wonder that we read that God was angry with Aaron? Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 20. Very revealing. It simply says this. The Lord was very angry with Aaron to have destroyed him. You know why he didn't destroy him? Because of what we read in the rest of the verse. Moses prayed for him. And I prayed for Aaron also the same time. Moses interceded for him. May God enable us to see sin for what it is, men and women, and to react accordingly, as Moses did. Won't you notice here the reply of Aaron? You see, what is most disappointing, not only in how he was easily led, But what is most disappointing is the answer that Aaron gave to what Moses had stated. It was pathetic. It was terrible to say the least. The first thing he does was to protest against Moses. Verse 22, Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Moses, what are you getting so hot under the collar about? Before he says anything. He concentrates on the anger that Moses had displayed. He should have been focusing on his own sin, but like so many, he seeks to deflect attention elsewhere. And particularly upon the anger of Moses, that in his view needed adjustment. Is that not the way of the unrepentant so often? Is that not the way of the old nature, the old flesh? Seeking to reverse things and to accuse the accuser. The school teacher is verbally abused. Why? Because she doesn't write a so glowing report about wee Johnny and how he's not paying attention in the class. How he's misbehaving. But the teacher is verbally abused. The first port of call when accusation is brought against the believer ought to be to look at ourselves, to examine ourselves and our actions before we seek to deflect attention elsewhere, to see if it is just, to see if it is right accusation. And if it's not, then we can denounce it. Aaron failed miserably in this regard. And you'll note that he seeks to pass the blame. It wasn't his fault. 
That's what he's saying to, to Moses. He did what Adam and Eve did back in the Garden of Eden when the Lord God came after sin had entered into the world and they had taken of that forbidden fruit. And so Adam, he blames God for bringing a woman unto him and he blames a woman. And, he blames the, and Eve blames the serpent. Well, Aaron, first of all, sought to blame the people. Verse 22. Thou knowest the people that they are set in mischief. Moses, you know all about them. You know the sort of people that they are. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. Moses, you know what they're like. He demanded that these gods be made. And then he indirectly blames Moses himself. Verse 23. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. Because the real problem he's saying is that you stayed too long in the top of the mountain. If you'd come down a little earlier, then none of this would have happened. He indirectly blames Moses. Everybody is to blame but himself, and that's often the manner of mankind. The would-be robber breaks into someone's house. They are the ones that end up bringing a court case against the homeowner because he happened to fall and break his leg. Isn't that right? Not my fault. And you'll see also that Aaron gives a phony explanation. Verse 24, I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it me, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. He said, I cast the gold into the fire, Moses, and out this calf came. And he wants Moses to believe that. He sought to tell Moses that the calf just happened. There was no molding of it. There's no fashioning it. There's no forming of it or engraving on his part. It just came out of the fire shaped as it was. How phony. How silly man's excuses for sin really are. They're nothing but bare-faced lies to seek to remove the blame from themselves. Aaron was weak. Aaron was Mr. Pliable. He was compromising when he should have been resolute. And when it came to being faced with the charges, he outrightly denied any portion of the blame to himself. What damage was caused through his weak leadership. And you know, dear people, there's no different when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ today. Weakness within is more harmful than the enemies of the church without. And you realize that. That's why God has given us governance for his church. That's why God has decreed in his word there should be elders. So that things are done decently and in order. That sin is stopped in its track. That it's judged if it needs to be. And this reply of Aaron is characteristic of how often a sinner faces up to the truth of the gospel. The guilty in the sight of God is happy to apportion blame elsewhere. Oh, listen, preacher, I'm not going to get saved. You see that man down the road? He calls himself a Christian. And there's the point in the finger of others. And there ought to be a contrition 
when there ought to be a repentance over sin, when there ought to be the spirit of that publican who went into the temple and smote upon his breast and he could not look heavenward, but he simply said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, the sinner. That's the reaction that we're looking for. But I do want to bring you to the the main part, and that is the response of Levi. You see, the contrast couldn't be any greater with Aaron when we have occasion to look at what Moses did and how he was to deal with that situation. He simply has to ask one question. It's the question that we've been singing. Verse 26, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. It tells us immediately that Moses did not go into the camp. Just in case you missed the opening words of verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp. He stood in the gate of the camp. He didn't go in. The camp was sinful. All the idolatry, all the adultery and immorality of the day had taken place amongst them. But unlike modern church leaders, Moses doesn't go into the middle of that. You see, the ecumenical chorus today is, that's often heard, we've got to get alongside these. These who are in error. We've got to show them the right way. We've got to tolerate their false doctrines and practices. We've got to turn the other cheek. We must sit under a dead hen and receive no teaching of God from God's word for our own soul. We can't leave the old church. But Moses didn't say that. And Moses didn't do that. He separated. He encouraged others to do the same. For notice the response of the tribe of Levi. It too was one of separation. Their action was a condemnation to the idolatry of Israel. The Israelites weren't, the Levites weren't prepared to stay on in that camp. They wanted to be on the Lord's side. And they see Moses standing at the gate and they hear this question, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. You see, being on the Lord's side meant one thing. It meant leaving the camp. It meant coming away from the crowd and instead to stand where Moses stood. That doesn't mean it would have been easy. The man or the woman who... uh, believes that it's easy to separate from the old church and from family and friends and other things is not telling the truth. But that's what the forefathers of this denomination did in 1951. They had to come out. They couldn't stay in the midst of a congregation in the presbytery that denied the gospel mission being held where it was planned to be held in Crossgar. And by doing so, they exposed doctrinal error and the liberal agenda that abounded. The Levites came out of the camp leaving behind friends, <clears throat> leaving behind the family, leaving, leaving behind those who were neighboring tents. It's never, never easy to separate from sin and evil, but they had to if they were going to be on the Lord's side. 
You see, the Lord is a pure eyes and to behold evil. Canst not look upon iniquity. If you're going to be on the Lord's side, then it will mean in these days separation. Separation from people. Separation from philosophies. Separation from places which are opposed to God. In other words, it's more than just merely religious or ecclesiastical apostasy that you will have to separate from. And that certainly you will have to do. It's separating from all that is wrong and sinful every other day of the week as well because can two walk together except they be agreed? Oh, the call is still the same as it was from the Apostle Paul to that church in Corinth and you will understand, you heard it again on Thursday night past, Corinth was a sinful city. There were many problems there, but the apostle writing to the believers, writing to the church, he had to say in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians 16, what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you. Christ is already outside the camp. Christ stood where Moses stood. And I would exhort the young people. And I would exhort I, indeed the adults, to remember why and how this denomination came into being. And young people, if you don't know, ask mommy or daddy. If they don't know, come and talk to us. Because if we forget our history, if we forget the reasons for biblical separation, then we just become another church. We just be like the rest. With the Levites, there was also the demonstration. They weren't ashamed to publicly declare their position by removing themselves from the camp and by coming on to Moses. They demonstrated that they were on the Lord's side. If we're on the Lord's side, we'll show it. Now that goes against the grain with many people. They'd rather be a secret disciple. They'd rather stay in the shadows. But men and women, young people, if we can't demonstrate in a public fashion that we belong to Christ, the one who died publicly on that yonder middle cross for our sins and for our redemption, then there isn't much depth to our faith. And there isn't much depth to our character. How we sing oftentimes, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend this cause. But I wonder, is it true where every other day of the week is concerned? Then you'll notice there's the execution with the Levites. You see, the Lord's service demands action. It involves service and was so for these Levites. Verse 27, he said unto them, Us saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man a sword by his side, go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Service for the Lord may not always be pleasant, may not always be easy. But as with the Levites, 
The Lord simply requires obedience. You know, there are critics who will suggest and they'll look at these verses and they'll, they'll say, well, that doesn't display very much the love of God. What those same critics ignore is the fact that the people had degraded God to being an animal. And the people, that same people, had engaged in the most immoral behavior. That words don't describe. And all that Moses saw, remember when he came down the mount, was the calf and their dancing. If this sin is not stopped, it would destroy countless more. And so slaying the leaders of the idolaters was not unjust, it was not unkind, it was an act of love, it was an act of mercy, for it it spared many innocents from destruction later on. Remember, when we're speaking about the nation of Israel at the Mount Sinai, we're talking about millions of them. We reckon those millions came out of the land of Egypt. But we're told here that only 3,000 were killed that day. That's about half of 1% of all that left Egypt. That wasn't such a large number. That's why I suggest to you that when they went in, they were to slay those that were leaders in this idolatry. About 3,000 men, were told in verse 28, were slain. And that meant for the Levites, they obeyed the orders, even though it affected their families, even though it affected their friends and their neighbors and their households. You see, they were men of integrity who feared God more than they feared men. It compares well to what the Savior taught himself. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 He said, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. In the service of God, all other loyalties have to be secondary. God is not calling us to take up the sword of steel to slay. But you know, men and women, there is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and it is to be handled well. For it is a sharp two-edged sword, which is used to slay evil thoughts and actions and friendships and plans and habits. For the Levites, their response is commendable. And standing on the Lord's side, you know, is rewarding. Verse 29, Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. They would be rewarded. They would receive the blessing of the Lord. And when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 33, We'll not take the time to go there, but we simply tell you that chapter 33 of Deuteronomy tells us that there was the Levites who were set apart to be the priests who ministered in the tabernacle, that tabernacle that God had told Moses about on the mount that was to be constructed. It was the Levites that were chosen. What a privilege 
for them to serve in the holy place. To serve in the sacrifices unto the Lord and to be priests unto the people. They were faithful. Our desire ought to be in the face of sin, in the face of forsaking of God in these days, that we may be faithful, that we might hear one day, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I don't think we should be too worried about what the world counts as success. I think we should be concerned that we are merely faithful as servants of His and to do what He has bidden us to do and to be faithful in it. May the Lord enable us to stand on the Lord's side in these days, in this our generation. Is that where you are this morning? For you know, if you're not on the Lord's side, you're on the side of the devil. That's reality. Where are you today? If you're yet on that broad road, then it's my prayer that you would come. You'd come to where the Apostle Paul speaks about at the end of the book of Hebrews. You come to Christ. For he says in the last chapter, verse 12, for Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Wonder will you go unto Christ today by faith? Wonder will you bear his reproach? Saved and a servant of his. May the Lord be pleased to help you. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word to each and every heart this morning for his own name's sake. 527. We'll sing in closing. We'll sing the first three verses in verse 5. 527, take up the cross, the Savior said. If thou wouldst my disciple be, deny thyself the world forsake, and humbly follow after me. 527, verses 1 to 3, and verse 5. Let's stand as we sing.
Our God and our Father, we thank thee for thy word. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge that it gives to our own hearts. And, O God, how Moses saw sin for what it is, a great sin that has come upon them. And, Lord, how it was judged. And, O Father, how he made them drink that bitter water. And, O God, we pray that we might, Lord, be those who stand where Moses stood, outside the camp of apostasy, of sin, of depravity. And we pray, Lord, that we might gladly take up thy cross and follow Christ. Bless us, we pray. Bless this word yet to our hearts. Remember those who will leave at this time, go before them, be unto them all that they would need. Bless those that will remain. Lord, abide with us, we pray. For we ask these mercies in our Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen.